served with moolah. You don't know how you're supposed to earn it or what to do with it or how to keep it. You're a freak with a dark, shameful secret. But you're not the only one. Get your hidden financial fears with a blast of sun. Now your healing has begun. It's bad with money with Gabby. Done. Welcome to the finale of season two of Bad With Money, the show where we're systematically dissecting the system. I, as always, am Gabby Dunn. Guys, we did it. We made it to the end of the second season of Bad With Money. Thank you all so much for listening, sharing, and letting me know your feelings about the show, which you really love to do. We tried to go in a different direction this season, and I hope you all enjoyed my exploration slash paranoid ranting about the weird cultural values that are encoded in our financial behaviors around seemingly basic social ideas like taxes, education, marriage, medical care. And just like last season, I'd love to know your thoughts on what you'd like to hear in the future episodes of the show. Let me hear it at badwithmoneyatslate.com. This week, however, I'm excited to bring you an episode that explicitly does what we've sort of low-key been doing here since the beginning, queering money. When I started Bad With Money, a lot of my anxiety came from the fact that it was hard to see myself fitting into the financial mainstream. And there wasn't necessarily anything ideological about that. I literally didn't understand how to reconcile my live-in-the-moment, devil-may-care approach to spending with my long-term goals of, you know, having a place to live and food to eat. I dream big, you guys. But now that I've learned a few things, I've realized that there's another way I don't see a place for myself in the American financial system. I'm a queer lady. Moreover, I'm a queer polyamorous woman, which means there's a lot of values that I consider fundamental to my sense of self that the American financial system doesn't value. In fact, it's probably never even considered that these values even exist or that I even exist. Or if it has, it's decided that they and I are not important. And for myself and my guests on the show today, that's not good enough. We're going to hear from a wide range of voices this week, so buckle up for another long episode, friends. In each case, it's going to be the voice of someone who's working hard to create community and bring value to like-minded people, which is what all of us are trying to do. Hopefully, if you're a good person. But for queer people and people outside the mainstream in other ways, there's the added complication of trying to make that work financially viable in an economic system that either doesn't see you or, in most cases, doesn't want to see you. So one more time this season, we'll ask the question, what the fuck are we supposed to do? For our first answer, let's meet Elena Month, a PhD student at the University of Texas and a writer for Autostraddle.com. Elena studies performance and feminism and the points where they intersect and the government's paying for it, whether they like it or not. My parents are not rich. And so we were relying on student loans to get me through school. Uh, And so that's the way that I paid most of my bills in undergrad. Now I work as part of my grad package. So I'm a TA and I make like a little over $1,000 a month. So I'm still really heavily relying on student loans. And I knew that at least for the master's part of this program, because I can't apply for fellowships yet, um, that I would have to rely on those student loans. So I take out almost $20,000 a semester. Um, Oh my God. Yeah, (laughs) I am going to have a lot of debt. But it's the only way that I'm able to sort of live the way that I need to live to also be successful in school. So I take out that money and then pay the majority of my bills at the top Mm -hmm. of the semester. 
And so that way, any money that's coming into me throughout the school year is is money that I'm able to use to like buy groceries and to like go hang out with my friends every once in a while. So I'm not reading all the time. So it's a way for me to feel really secure and like I'm able to move around Um, because before I was really relying on student loans in the way that I was, I was like paycheck to paycheck is a nice way to think about how I was living. Um, and it was a lot more stressful. And there were many, many months when I like wasn't making the amount of money that I needed to be able to pay all of my bills and also like feed myself. So this has been a way for me to right now at least be able to live as comfortably as I can, knowing that in about four years, I'm going to have to start paying it all back. We had someone else talk about student debt. I can't remember if it was someone on the show or if it was just my mom, but it was someone talking about student loans and they said, yeah, just take the money to like study what you want and do what you want. And then like, who cares? Don't pay them back. Like who gives a shit? Like it was like this thing of like, take their money and then who like, oh, I owe you money. Okay. I'm going to die with that. (laughs) And honestly, that's something that I've thought about. Um, (laughs) It really is something that I thought about. And I mean, what are you going to do about it? Like give me bad credit. Like I already have bad credit. (laughs) <laughs> who cares anymore um but then I also think about like oh but like what if I want a family one day and like maybe I will need credit to have a family and so it is, it is difficult when I'm thinking about like how I want my future to be but I think part of like divesting from capitalism in the system for me is thinking about the possibility of just not paying it back yeah why not At this point, it's reparations. I mean, mean, really. (laughs) But that's what I would think of it as. I had an ex-boyfriend who was um, not great to me, and and he gave me a bunch of money. And then people were like, now that you're broken up, you should pay him back, right? And I was like, no. (laughs) Now that's called a tax for being an asshole. Absolutely. That's your asshole tax. (laughs) So, like, yeah, you just assume that, like, all of white academia is, like, paying a tax. To you personally. Right. Absolutely. And I think that's also part of why I'm excited to get out of student loans and to get into fellowship land, because then it is money that's just like given to me to do whatever I want with. And like, really, the great thing about fellowships is that as long as you do a project at the end of your fellowship with the money that they've given you, like they literally don't care what you do with the money in the middle or they just care about the end product. And I think that that's really great because it's like... With student loans, like, it's like, you can't get arrested. You can't get, like, certain grades. Um, And so I feel Mm -hmm. like I have all these stipulations on me about, like, what kind of person I need to be and, like, what kind of citizen they want me to be, really, because it's coming from the government. Um, Mm -hmm. And once you get a fellowship, it's private money. And, like, I can do whatever the hell I want to do with it. And that feels freeing. It feels really free and good. What do you want to do, ideally, like, as a job? Ideally, I'd love to be a professor. I think... With a PhD in the humanities, there's not really any other career path. Um, yeah, you have to, the glasses for it. Right. Thank you. You're already starting. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, so, yeah, I think I have a professor aesthetic and um, it's really it's really what I want to do. <laughs> it's really hard to find a job as a professor. And so I expect to spend at least a couple of years working either at a community college or at like a private high school, perhaps. But until I'm on that sort of tenure track professorship, I don't expect to be making much money, which is Mm -hmm. scary. But I mean, I I signed up for this, so I knew what I was getting into. You make jokes a a bit about like 
you know, student loans and money and also about sort of being in Texas as like a non-binary person or like a black person for people in the audience who don't know the terminology. Can you explain a little bit of like the non-binary stuff? Sure. So I am uh, non-binary, which to me is uh, falls under the transgender umbrella. So I don't identify as either a man or a woman. I just identify as Elena. Non-binary is like not necessarily the greatest term for me right now, but it's something that fits and that more and more people are coming to understand that my gender doesn't lie on either side of the binary, but rests somewhere in the middle and outside of it. So that's what non-binary means to me. And right now it's really hard to be non-binary in Texas. It's hard to be trans anywhere, but I think Texas is passing currently especially harmful bills and legislation for trans people. Um, Mm -hmm. And leaving North Carolina, I thought I was getting out of that. um, Oh, my God. (laughs) You've had quite a journey. I really have. So (laughs) right before I left North Carolina, they passed the trans bathroom bills. (laughs) Right. Um, And then I moved to Texas. And that was something that I asked. I was like, are there bathroom bills here yet? Like, can I am I free to like pee wherever I want? Are people going to harass me? And they were like, no, you're great. Um, And then that recently changed. So. Can you talk a little bit about the jokes that you I'm I'm like big fan of your social media presence. Thank um, you. Can you talk a little bit about the jokes that you make kind of about like the added stressors of that kind of thing in like the academic world? Yeah, for sure. So I think like one of the hardest things for me and something that I joke about a lot is just feeling like there's not necessarily space for me in academia. So I spend most of my time in the theater and dance building because that's my mm-hmm. program. And there is not a single not gender inclusive bathroom in that entire right. building. So for the most part, if I want to go to the bathroom, I have to leave the building where like my office is, where most of my classes are. And then talking about it with faculty and other grad students, it's not necessarily something that is considered very, very important to change. Mm. So we recently had some work done on a bathroom in the theater and dance building, and it should have been a bathroom that was turned into a gender-inclusive bathroom. And instead, they just sort of renovated more men and women's bathrooms, um, which I don't understand because we talked about like the cost of it, and it would have been cheaper to build a gender-inclusive bathroom. So it's just really hard a lot of times feeling like there's not space for me and that I have to sort of make my own space. And that's already difficult enough as a grad student, because I think, uh, especially at a school like UT, because it's huge, I'm living in this really sort of in-between space where I'm not always considered a student, but also not not quite a faculty member. So like quite a few of undergrads see me as a professor because I TA, but I'm not a professor at all, <laughs> like not even close. I have homework every night. It's a really interesting space to be in because I feel like I have a lot more power than undergrads in being able to like voice my opinions and talk to faculty and help incite change. But at the same time, I'm still in a really sort of tenuous position where like there are a lot of outside pressures on me, but I also have to like maintain a 3.8 GPA or I will lose all my scholarships. Um, Mm -hmm. And so a lot of times it's like picking battles, which is hard. And so there have been days or weeks, really, when I've just chosen not to come to campus. But you just just don't want to deal with it. Right. I just don't want to deal with it. So it's it's like not coming is the way that I deal with it. How are they with um, pronouns? They're okay. My faculty in my department have worked really hard at pronouns. um, And that 
feels really good for me. I took two classes outside of my department this last semester. Missed the first day of classes just because of like some scheduling mix-ups. And so I'm not sure if they like did pronouns and like just missed mine because I came in late or if it wasn't something that happened. So I spent my entire last semester being referred to as she over and over and over and over. And I used they pronouns and it was really discouraging And it's really hard also when people are referring to you as she and saying good things about you. (laughs) And so you're not being mean, but also (laughs) this is not how I want you to talk about me at all. Yeah. I mean, it's just like what you were saying, like it sort of adds to the like emotional labor of being a student, I think is what a lot of your internet jokes are about. Mm -hmm. Would they normally, I haven't been in a school and by choice in so long. Um, How do they, do they do typically do pronouns at the beginning of classes now? Yeah, it's becoming a lot more common, um, especially in the classes that I'm taking. So my research is based a lot on sort of sexuality and performance and race. Um, And so I'm stepping into classrooms where people are thinking about sexuality and gender Um, And so it's a lot more common in the classes that I'm taking. I also intern, though, at a gender and sexuality center on campus and hear from students that are in, like, science and math majors that that's not something that happens. Uh, Mm -hmm. But in the sort of, like, performance and women's and gender studies world, it does seem to be a common thing. Are there preconceived notions for ways of, like, people of particular genders interact with monies? Or are you kind of, like thinking about that or pushing back against that. Like, I hate this kind of, you know, there's all this kind of pervasive stuff of like, oh, those women be buying shoes. Mm -hmm. And like, is that something? I mean, it's also funny because it kind of has to do with your major, too. Sure. I think that there definitely are these sort of notions of how people spend money in grad school. And I honestly think it's less to do with gender and more to do with like being a student. And I think that there's this sort of impression that we spend the majority of like any free money that we get either on books or alcohol. And like, that's just very much so not the case that I've seen. Like the majority of my friends and I will go out maybe once a month because it's just not feasible to do so more Mm -hmm. than that. I'm lucky enough to be in a program where a lot of my cohort are also queer. Um, And Mm -hmm. so something that like we talk about is that we're all very particular in how we spend our money too, because we're trying to sort of divest from these systems that aren't built for us. So like I've started doing a CSA box that's available through school, I think, and it's intended for faculty, but anyone who um, is sort of on staff gets a letter from HR about it (laughs) every week. (laughs) Um, And so I'm able to like choose where I buy my groceries from um, and like choose where I'm going to buy Yeah, can you explain what a CSA is? Sure. I think it stands for... Ooh. <laughs> I'm not sure what it is. I just blanked, too. It's like community... Something. Sam, my producer, came in with community-supported agriculture. We're in Brooklyn right now, so <laughs> Sam just really has his finger on the pulse. Love it. Yeah. <laughs> so community-supported agriculture. Um, <laughs> and it's a way where I get to buy groceries from local Texas farmers and support the farms instead of buying. And it's it's only produce. There are some CSAs in Texas that also offer meat, which is like so Texas. Um, <laughs> but I only get produce from them. As a student slash staff member, I get to pay for a box that 
because it's probably like enough produce for two people and it's about $20 every other week. Um, oh, that's awesome. Yeah. And so it's a really great way for me to be thinking about how I can spend less money buying groceries, but also like a way that I'm being intentional about where I'm spending that money. So this whole season has kind of been me railing against these systems that don't work for, the let's say, the majority of people now. Sure. Yeah. Can you say more about that, about being queer and trying to divest from these systems that are working against you, but then seem so pervasive that it's like, well, where am I supposed to get my clothes from? Where am I supposed to get my car from? Is there any way to be queer and exist under capitalism? <laughs> Please solve this for me today. <laughs> hmm. I, <ooh. laughs> I think I'm really falling apart on this one. <laughs> I feel like yes and no. Um, I say yes. Because there are ways that like, so like thinking about Autostraddle, um, you can pay for an A-plus subscription or you can go to A-camp or you can send someone to A-camp if like you don't want to go that year. And I think that's a really good way, like places like Autostraddle are working really hard to build community both online and in the real world for queer people while still working under capitalism because like they have bills to pay and writers to pay and editors mm -hmm. to pay. I like that sort of donation slash subscription model of capitalism because it allows people to to contribute what they can. Yeah. And to hopefully maybe carry the other people like, you know, like right. if a bunch of us are paying for a plus, then right. the site can keep going. Absolutely. Yeah. Or like giving camperships, I think, is a really great way of it. I give a little bit of my tax refund every year to a campership for trans women because I think that it's so important that they're able to have that space. Um, and so mm -hmm. that's a way that I feel like I'm like directly working under capitalism because like that's not what the government expects me to spend that money on that they took for me. <laughs> um, <laughs> but instead, I'm saying like you're not going to support trans women in like policies and laws and literally anything. And so... I am going to instead give this money to trans women and let them have like hopefully what is one of the best weeks of their lives. Your life and your work intersect a lot. So like even, you know, your work looking at this kind of stuff, it's like on the show, we've been really immersed in this tension between wanting to be seen and taken seriously by mainstream mainstream financial culture, but then also distrusting rightfully mm -hmm. so, I think, the system that it's based on. Yeah. Equal parts, I'll get emails from people who are like, we want more of this revolution type stuff. And then I'll get emails from people who are like, but what are some tips and tricks? <laughs> and so we did an episode that was like a tips and tricks episode. And it really just devolved into me yelling at this white lady about how <laughs> about how she like didn't understand that putting your clothes on different hangers isn't going to solve like low income people's problems. <sighs> is there any way like is there anything that you do personally that is you know, OK, this is how I'm going to save money or this is how I'm going to invest in trying to repay my student loans in the future. Or do you just kind of not think about it? With regards to student loans, I, I don't think about it. Honestly, I think it's a little too scary to think about right now. <laughs> um, this is my first year of grad school. I'm probably about $60,000 in debt right now and expect to be Hopefully no more than $80,000 in debt. My goal is to like survive the last three years of my PhD on a fellowship. So fingers crossed. Mm -hmm. But I, I also think like being in a university is a really like it's it's definitely a privilege. And it, that's something that I, I think about every day that I'm in class and like everyday period. 
In in academia, I mean, are you seeing a lot of other people that look like you or are you kind of the only no, one? No, I am. There is one other black person in my entire program. Um, and I believe that she just graduated. We just accepted another black person. So there will be two black people once again. Oh, that's so great. They've met their quota of two We've black people per, quota per two at a time. At a time. Yeah. So that is I definitely don't see people that look like me, which is really really difficult. But I also think that like my because my work is so directly connected with my life, like it's kind of this like, fuck you to the university. Is that like, (laughs) thanks, I will take this like little bit of money that you give me and like all these resources that you give me. And I'm only going to talk about queer black people. Sorry, whatever. It's almost like if you're the only one in there, you kind of have to be there to be like, all right, now I've blazed a path or something sure absolutely and it it honestly it feels like a lot of pressure to hold but luckily this is what I want to do I think I would feel a lot more anxious and nervous if I was in like math or something and felt like my research had to be like beneficial to trans people but also was about math because I don't know how that would work but like luckily what I'm interested in is my my body and my life and my experiences and how to write about those academically because it's not written about. And I think that right. that's such a problem. Like I, I just recently started doing some like deep research for my thesis and I'm looking sort of at performances of sadness in public. And most of the research written is about sort of like white people. And I was like, but what about like black butches like that's what I want to write about I want to write about how come butches don't feel like they can cry (laughs) Um, yeah well there's probably not no research on that nothing on that and so it's exciting or even why why black people feel like they like how black people can express sadness in public versus white people absolutely because that's sort of where I started was just thinking about black people in general and then I was like but actually I like want to talk about queer stuff and realize that like there's literally no research written about black queer people and emotion in public. My way of sort of fighting back is saying that like, sure, I'm like a million dollars in debt, you know, over exaggerating. But (laughs) when I get out of here, like I'm going to have a doctorate, which is like so much privilege in the world to be able to say that I have a PhD and I'm going to have a PhD having had studied like black queer people on the state's dime um, because I'm like <laughs> at a state school. So this is like a fully publicly funded research project that I'm doing right now. Oh, and it's like it's... y'all are paying for me to figure out like why you're fucking up. And so like that's why I'm here. <laughs> that's so good. Yeah. Oh, my God. I think the show does that a little bit, which is why we get equal parts good feedback and also people who are like i thought this was a money show and then now i have to listen to gays talk and i'm like like yeah, i tricked you um, but like yeah i mean it's all interconnected in a way do you do you ever feel like you're sort of like do like doing a trick i don't know not like a trick but do you know what i mean where you're like oh i i came here and yeah i'm studying at your university and now it's like oh i tricked you Yeah, I mean, especially like my so my internship is at the Gender and Sexuality Center on campus. And just like the fact that that center even exists in a state like Texas is like phenomenal. And so I think Mm -hmm. that there are there are definitely ways where like I come into a school and I'm like, sure, yeah, I'll be the perfect student. I'll get an internship and I'll like work with your research faculty and like only working with queer faculty 
only choosing to cite like queer people and people of color in every paper that I write. And so it's like, yeah, I'm going to come and like fit into what you consider to be like the the academy, but also like I'm going to completely fuck up this institution and like use the sort of outcasts <laughs> because like I want the outcasts to be the center of my work, the center of my life. And I I think that that is one of the great things about being a student is that there is sort of this freedom to say, to like be able to uh, be at odds with the president of a university and not have it be something that's like threatening me. Like student activism has a really strong history, especially at UT, I think. And the the undergrad student activists here are like phenomenal and are very militant, a lot more so than me, I think. Um, <laughs> but I, I think that because of this sort of rich tradition of students and dissent in universities that it's sort of expected sometimes for me to be a little out there. But even like in that expectation, I like to go a step further and do things that make people uncomfortable and like publicly criticize someone because like if my grades are fine like you literally cannot do anything to me i can say anything (laughs) i want about you and like you can't do anything because i'm passing classes becoming an adult entertainer to pay for college might be a tired trope in hollywood comedies or dramas but it's also a real option lots of people choose Which, by the way, they wouldn't have to if higher education was more affordable in this country, but we digress. Chris Zyshik spent years performing in adult films under the name Danny Wilde. It paid for his rent, his classes, his books. But now, even though he's done performing, he's still paying in other ways. I was 19, a student. Um, I needed a job, and I was like on Craigslist looking for normal work, Mm -hmm. and... I was living in the Bay Area at the time, like the California Bay Area, and uh, there were all these ads for like nude modeling. Often, like gay photographers would post these ads, and they'd want young men to come in. And so I did a little bit of that. It was very low pain, but it got me kind of comfortable being in front of a camera and taking my clothes off. And you know, a lot of these these shoots ended up being like relatively sleazy and they'd want me to jerk off and so forth. Mm -hmm. So by the time I saw an ad for like a porn shoot, it didn't seem that big of a deal. Mm -hmm. Um, And also I had, I had looked at an ad that was for the company now known as kink.com. So it's like BDSM, Mm -hmm. a little more extreme. And my thought process at the time was that my family, if they were going to look at porn would probably not look at that porn. (laughs) That's actually a great thought process. Yeah, uh, that didn't necessarily turn out to be the case. but um, <laughs> So you learned something about them as well. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Yes. Uh, but then, yeah, I met um, an ex-girlfriend of mine uh, in the offices of kink.com. She introduced me to people in Los Angeles, and I kind of moved down and changed schools and uh, kind of got myself through school and then afterwards I kept working until I had um, a little bit of like a medical scare and quit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In terms of the industry, is there any kind of like retirement plan situation? Like do people talk about that? People don't talk about that. I mean, initially I didn't even think of it like as a job. I just thought of it like, well, I need to get through school. This is stuff that I'll do on the side. And, you know, as, as far as like a, a school side job. It was lucrative for me at the time. Mm -hmm. Um, 
but afterwards, I, I'd say like a year after I graduated, I still had that thought process and I would only do it here and there and then try to work other jobs. And all these other jobs were paying me so little. And I was I basically, I don't know, I wasn't starving or whatever, but I, you know, it just became apparent to me very quickly that I could make more money continuing to do porn. And so I had about three years in which I was like, all right, I'm going to try and be a porn star. And, mm -hmm. you know, I did okay. It was never huge money, but um, I was like very middle, middle class. Mm -hmm. And um, I still was not very smart, I think, with my money. I, I, I'm like the type of the person that always has like little side art projects going on. And so I think that whatever I saved, I put towards that rather than into like a savings account or yeah. like a retirement fund. And um, I kind of wish maybe I'd thought more about that now, but you know, that's the way it is. What was the disparity between like a, a day, a normal day job you could have versus like if, what you could make doing porn? Like, was it thousands of dollars difference? No. I mean, my porn rate when I was like at the top of my game was anywhere between 400 and $700 a scene. Mm -hmm. And usually I would do one scene a day. Mm -hmm. Um, so like, let's say I averaged like five or $600 when I would work and maybe I would work like 15 days out of the month. Mm -hmm. So it was not like bad money. Uh, but when I would try and go to a different job, uh, like PA or do like mm -hmm. grip work on like a really low budget film or something like that, you know, I would like make 75, a $150 a day, something right. in that range and the availability of work to me was still like similar like I can really work more than 15 days of the month and I wouldn't say I was necessarily that good at doing anything I was still trying to learn you mm -hmm. know so the the rates may have been fair but like we live in LA it's really hard to get by uh, on that type of income when you were in school did you have like student loans or what were you yeah um I ended up graduating from USC which is really expensive it's a private school mm -hmm. um so I the money I was making from porn was not going towards my tuition. It was going towards me, like, just paying rent and, and right. paying for books and, like, school supplies. I had loans. I had some grants. And then I think my grandparents pitched in a little bit. Yeah. So it was, like, a mix of three different things. And I came out. I still have student debt. Like, it's going to be a while before I pay that off. But, um, yeah. In your eyes, what was the class system money-wise? Uh, well... There are, I think, like, uh, with a lot of entertainment industries or sections of the entertainment industry, there are always, like, a handful of people who are getting, like, most of the jobs or yeah. at least most of the big jobs. And so, you know, I, I knew a lot of people who were making, like, at least somewhere in six figures. I don't know, like, large six figures, but somewhere between, like, a hundred and and $200,000 mm -hmm. a year just from performing. And I think that was, like... That's probably as good as you were going to get at like performing yeah. in porn. Uh, honestly, I don't, I think the people who make more than that are also producing their own content and directing and, and like sort of have a little empire going on. Yeah. Or dancing or doing public appearances sure. or doing merch. Sure. Yeah. It's very similar to YouTube. Oh my God. Okay. <laughs> um, and then there was kind of like me, what I would, I would say is like a middle of the road, like yeah. porn person. Hard, hard middle of the road. <laughs> Which, um, 
I think at the top I was making somewhere between like seventy and eighty thousand, but that that was not necessarily true for most of my career. I mean, in the beginning, I was making like under forty thousand dollars a year. And right, but a lot of people yeah. who listen to this show maybe their entire yearly salary is way less than that. Sure. Oh, I, I totally understand. Um, it's all relative. So yeah. like, it's better than like working a minimum wage job, absolutely. But the, there's a thing going on right now that I think is very different than when I started um, is that I came in like the decline of internet porn and I was still able to like make a decent living. Uh, that's really changed. Like I'm on set sometimes for, for porn production mm-hmm. still. And when I interview girls, they say like, oh, I'm new. I've been in for a few months. And I ask them like how many scenes they've done. And their answer is usually less than six. When I started, if you were like a, a conventionally attractive person, um, you could be working like 15 to 30 times a day, like immediately. Or sorry, not 15 to 30 times a day, a month. A month. Yeah. Um, and the fact that that's down to like one to three times a month for yeah. a lot of new people that's really like to me it's almost not worth it except to advertise for like other things you're doing uh sex work wise like if you want to escort or right something. there's also uh, similar to other content creators there's i i see a thing that's like well i have a private instagram or a private snapchat you can pay sure or there's like a patreon esh type thing where you can like pay to support this person or amazon wishlist or you know whatever it is like there's other models that aren't just doing traditional scenes there's like and then they're gonna cam as well and like there's a bunch of different things you have to do yeah and i think whatever i think that that is like the model of being a porn star now Mm -hmm. and so maybe it is worth it if you want to do all of that like if you're invested in being like a full-time porn person Mm -hmm. then i think you can probably still do okay i mean to me performing wasn't like this very like very personally validating experience uh it was just like a job right and so i wanted to just go to a job and do my job and leave and get paid but i think now it's like well i did like that once or twice a month now everyone knows i do porn so i can't get other types of work so how else am i going to make money off of that so now i need to open like a many vids account, an OnlyFans mm-hmm. account, a clips for sale account. I need to set up shoots with other people for trade so we both get the content. Collabs. Yeah. We cut it, we put it all over the fucking place, and I will get like 10 different checks from different people. Yeah. And at the end of the month, I can pay my bills. Like, that's how it works now. How do you do your taxes? <laughs> <laughs> I actually have a CPA because I. This am is a bad nightmare. At this sh- yeah. yeah. I. Um, I mean, one of the smart things I did do, and someone recommended this to me a long time ago when I was first getting in, is I opened a corporation. I went on, like, um, there's some website you can mm-hmm. pay $500. The Universal will... Life Church. <laughs> <laughs> Just you can Google that. I'm sure there are a lot of options now. Yeah. I was told that as a performer, I could write off, like, most things because my body was essentially, like, what oh, I was... Yeah my business yeah so like the gym is a write-off like right. all of this stuff and and i even because i was editing some stuff back then like my apartment was partially my office so you could like mm-hmm. write off a certain amount of that i don't know but still i don't know how to do this on my own and i pay someone else and 
I'm always on a payment plan with this person. Right, but yeah. um, but he does save me a lot of money because I did briefly have a real job a couple of years ago, and I realize the majority of people out there get a fuck ton of taxes taken out of their paycheck. Yes, they do. And uh, if we can skip this, if you want, but for, for stuff that is like porn is legal, yeah. stuff that is more illegal, sure. How does that fit into like? So you're talking about like escorting? Yeah. Okay. No, we can talk about that. Uh, I, I'll say I don't currently do escorting, though I have mm-hmm. in the past. Um, and I mean, the way to deal with that is I would just get paid in cash, right. and I would never claim it, and right. that just lives in a box mm-hmm. under my bed, or I mean, not under my bed, but lives yeah, somewhere yeah, yeah. in my apartment. I think that's the only way to really deal with that. I mean, if someone is paying you and with a check when they like ask you to come to their hotel and fuck them. I mean, maybe, maybe that's not worth it. I don't they know. Just pay you with Bitcoin. <laughs> uh, do, you, do you take money order? Like, yeah, no, right? no. Oh my God. What if you just had square on your phone and you just swiped credit cards? I mean, maybe they do. But the thing is that's, that's a shitty part of sex work related stuff. I just um, had my PayPal account permanently banned for the second time yeah let's talk about that so the stigma and the and the how you're not able to use certain money stuff yeah a lot of the sex industry these days especially when it comes to online stuff so people are like camming they're selling personalized videos they're selling their underwear they're selling who knows what right but that that's how a lot of like sex workers make money and a lot of the time we're getting paid via PayPal, via Venmo, via Square, mm-hmm. Walla. I don't know. There are a million of these things now. PayPal's the biggest. Most people have that, especially when you're doing international transfers. Right. Uh, but they are very, very strict with their terms of service. Oh, yeah. So anything that... Um, has anything to do with sexually explicit material, like you'll get banned. Like not even you get to appeal it, you just get banned. And Why? Uh, I what don't, are they so upset about? I don't know. I mean, this is like a huge, everyone I know who works in this capacity has had a similar Has thing been happen. banned from yeah, PayPal? Basically. It's really just a badge of honor. <laughs> Wait, I don't know. Do the other places have? I think they might, but they, for whatever reason, it's harder to get caught or I don't really know. I'm, I'm just, trying not to i'm just trying to keep them open for as long as possible um the first time it happened i had a blog that i used to run like several years ago that you know was somewhat popular at least within that community and i was like you know what i'm gonna do i'm gonna start selling stuff direct for my blog i made this like cool little indie porno that i Mm -hmm. wrote all the music for and blah 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 and i put it up and i got like a few orders in like an hour and then email from paypal that was like please take our name off of your blog immediately your account has been disabled permanently there is no appeal process <laughs> like just i don't under like not that's not illegal it's not illegal sell no but porn. <laughs> but most banks do not deal with adult material it's a thing like wait what do you mean if you have a website a regular website that is not pornographic it's not sexually explicit I've never heard of such a thing go on yeah <laughs> you're selling t-shirts or whatever the entire internet yeah. is porn, so, but okay but like you have like stripe or all of those yeah. things that they won't work with porn at all but uh, what if if you were selling shirts like yeah. merch yeah they wouldn't 
No, I use Stripe to sell my merch, but I'm not selling porn on my website right right now. But if I were, I could only use like one or two banks or, uh, and they they would charge like insane interest. Oh, so was there a change in perception of your income from your friends when you started doing porn or like, would they think, Oh, Chris's job is easy. Or like Chris has mm. the best job, you know, or like he's making tons of money from like the coolest thing. I mean, I was pretty open about, about, I mean, not the exact numbers that I was making, but at least with my closest friends, like they knew that I was just, you know, I had like a pretty decent job for like our age. Mm-hmm. Like I was making more money than my classmates for sure mm-hmm. when I was in school. But then there were also people who came for money and didn't really have to work. So, I mean, when you're at like a private school, right. like there's a lot of people like that. On the other hand, there's a lot of people struggling and trying to do whatever or living off of loans mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Um, I don't know. Like it didn't seem like anyone thought I was like a millionaire. Um, I imagine though that you, you would get a lot of people being like, oh, that's such a sweet gig. I could do that. Yes. I mean, I, but that's, that's mostly. And that's mostly... how they talk. They go, what a sweet gig. I'll fuck chicks all day for money. <laughs> I feel like a lot of that comes from people who I'm not very close with. Right. And especially strangers. I mean, I would get that shit at like the gym all the time. Like, bro, you got to help me out. Like, get me on set. I can fuck bitches all day. And, <laughs> and no one wants to hire that person. And that person right. is probably going to be very bad at porn. <laughs> Ugh. Um, yeah, because I don't think that they're taking into account that it's like a grind, like a job. I mean, also, aside from that, I mean, if are, if any men are listening, it's extraordinarily difficult in the beginning, I think, just to get in the headspace to be able to do it at all. Mm-hmm. I mean, men, I'm sure it's very different for women and it's hard for uh, different reasons. And there are all the emotional things that go along with that. But I think for for guys just being like, all right. In my head, like, hot girl, I'm mm-hmm. going to fuck her. But, like, on set, I'm waiting a long time. This girl has no interest in me. Mm-hmm. Before we have sex, some guy who's going to stand very close to my penis is going to say, all right, before we get to video, uh, all right, you need to get hard and we're going to take some stills. All right, freeze. And, like, put your penis in her. Freeze. All right, let's take the – all right, next, stop moving. Right. So, like, you have not had any foreplay. This girl is probably, like, mad about whatever's been going on. Checking her phone. Like, does not care. So, like, she doesn't give a shit about you. And now, like, you're not even, like, getting some warm-up time with her to, like, have sex. Like, you need to be erect and do stills before you get to, like, the video part. Mm Mm-hmm. And um, some guy is standing over your shoulder for like a POV shot. Yeah. And he is holding the camera next to your face, taking a picture of your penis. And <laughs> you can't jerk off or like have her give you right. a blowjob. You just need to be hard. Right. And that is um, very difficult. Yeah. I Yeah. I definitely don't think that they are thinking it through. Yeah. And also, like, whenever somebody has said that to me, like, it's mostly dudes when they say that to me, like, oh, that's sweet, like, you know, or whatever. It'll be such a cool gig. I'm always like, let me ask you a question. Have you ever in your life had sex in front of another person, like, even in a threesome? And then they're like, no, but, like, I could. And I'm like, okay, you definitely can't. Right. You've you've (laughs) never even had a single person watching you? Like, imagine a set. Right. 
whatever. Everyone's stupid. Coming up, finding a financial advisor who shares your values is easy if you're a Christian or a billionaire or just your average run-of-the-mill middle-class cis white person. Our next guest is on a mission to bring quality financial advice to the scores of people who don't fall into those categories. Stay tuned. Maybe you've considered making an appointment with a financial advisor, someone who helps you think about your life, your goals, and the amount of money you're going to need to keep those things from going off the rails. In looking for this advisor, you'd want them to be someone who understands your experience on an intuitive level, right? For a long time, people in the LGBT community, and the trans community in particular, haven't really had that as an option. That's why Natalie Miller chose her career. I transitioned about four and a half years ago, and when I did... I started giving back to the community. I started getting involved in the community because I finally had a community that I felt uh, attached to and I, that I you know, felt I belonged to for the first time. I was living uh, paycheck to paycheck. I was uh, working as a wildlife biologist for the state of Wisconsin and living at home with my mother you know, at age 33, living at home with my mother because <laughs> I couldn't afford to live on my own. And I was still trying to get involved, volunteering with a, a national transgender organization based out of Milwaukee, joining the board of directors mm -hmm. at a public, LGBT public health organization in Milwaukee. I was giving time, but I, I had nothing else to give, and I really wanted to be able to give more. I also wanted to, you know, like I have dreams of owning a home and, and traveling the world and just getting out uh, of where I was. But more than anything, I had dreams of giving back more. Uh, becoming someday a significant donor, a significant sponsor uh, of these communities that I care about, and these organizations that are doing amazing work. So I finally started to do something about it. I, I reached out to uh, another financial advisor. I met her at the 2015 LGBT Leadership Conference in Milwaukee and just like asked for help. Now, there wasn't a lot that she could do for me financially, but she helped me uh, learn some important things about me, like strengths and and stuff like that. And she helped me see, like, maybe I could do something different than what I was doing and still have a positive uh, impact on the world. And uh, I remember the day uh, when she when she looked at my – I took a culture index survey, and it, it, you know, measures seven different metrics of who you are and uh, what you might be good at and – you know, I found out that I'm a, a big picture uh, people person <laughs> and I had been in these uh, <laughs> jobs for so long where I was working alone and I was doing detail-oriented work. Um, surprised that it didn't right. work out. <laughs> um, she she shows me that and she looks at me and she's like, would you ever consider doing what I do? And I was finally in a place in my life where I was like, why not? What do I have to lose? So I made a pretty dramatic yeah. career switch at age 33 <laughs> and struck out in a direction I never thought I would ever go. Um, and I love it. But it must be nice to have a lot of – to have more LGBT financial advisors. Well, there's still not a lot. Um, only 24 percent of the financial industry is, is female and so you can – uh, infer from that that it's significantly, uh, you know, lower numbers of uh, LGBT identified individuals in that subset. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, there's just not a lot of us out there. Um, I happen to be um, one of the very first uh, openly transgender financial reps 
uh, in the the company that I work for is History, um, and one of uh, only a handful probably in the country who are doing what I do as an openly transgender individual. How else does your transition affect your relationship to your career? Well, like I said, I've spent most of my life living paycheck to paycheck, and there are there is a there's a majority I would say of the of the trans community that has experienced that um there's probably a significant portion uh I think I could say that confidently there's a significant portion um who are regularly facing um job discrimination uh joblessness uh who are living in poverty um uh, the the rates in the l g b t communities and especially the transgender community uh tend to be much higher than in the straight communities and in in the you know with their straight peers. Uh, or their cisgendered peers. Um, so unfortunately, that's that's a fairly common occurrence. And uh, even my situation, where I was, you know, living paycheck to paycheck, but I I had a place to land. You know, I had a a parent that accepted me and gave me a place to to stay, even when I couldn't pay rent. That isn't always the case. So there, there's regularly people who are just struggling barely to get by and doing whatever they can uh, to survive and to get by. And and I can understand uh, what it's like to be in that position. To a degree, you know, there, there's certain privileges that I even have uh, as a white uh, trans woman um, that others don't have. Um, but it does put me in a in a unique position to understand some of the challenges. Uh, the challenges of um, basically starting from scratch uh, in terms of building a wardrobe, uh, changing you know the clothes that you wear, changing your entire presentation. Um, that that has a financial cost to it, uh, the the costs of transition related healthcare, uh, whether it's hormones or surgeries or, or all of the above, uh, that 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 doesn't come cheaply. And and some people are fortunate to to have coverage through their employers because we're seeing you know some forward progress in that realm, but not everyone uh, has that has access to that yet. Yeah, I mean that must be huge. Like the, I think there's a lot of unseen costs, financial costs to transitioning that are like even, you know, paying to change your documents and stuff yes. like that. Yeah. Um, but then there's the, the indirect costs, you know, being an openly transgender person or being somebody who the world um, doesn't acknowledge the gender that they identify. Uh, just it's harder to get a job and it's harder to keep a job when you have one and it's harder to find safe mm -hmm. and secure housing and all of that takes a, a toll on a person's finances and just makes it that much more difficult to get a solid footing and to start moving forward in our lives financially. Yeah, why are marginalized communities traditionally excluded from mainstream financial systems? The majority of the, the financial services industry is still affluent white, straight men. And the the concepts, the strategies, the education around uh, financial savviness and, and building a financial future isn't something that's readily passed on to whether it's daughters or whether it's to children who, uh, you know, identify in one of the marginalized communities, LGBT uh, or otherwise. There's certain... Um, you know, just institutional uh, structures and, and systemic structures that, that make it easier and, and more commonplace for whether it's fathers to be passing down financial info or, or you know, financial strategies to their sons uh, or uncles, you know, passing it down to nephews or, or, or sons of, the, you know, theirs. So it just, it, there's really a strong tradition in 
the you know on on the masculine side of things on the the patriarchal side of things to you know pass all that down and that's not as often translated into um as easily given or shared with uh women or with with their daughters with their nieces with the with uh other members of marginalized communities there's there's plenty of communities out there that um don't have necessarily those traditions of of going and and getting that kind of support you know many of them don't uh operate on a a model of of financial building financial wealth and many of them are very cash based systems and structures uh, and it's just the building financial wealth in, in a certain way isn't prioritized in those communities in the way that it is in others or a lot of their jobs operate in cash exactly and so these communities the, these marginalized groups aren't often um seen as places to go to to you know, for a financial rep who's looking to build a market, they, they're not uh, traditionally have, – they haven't been looked to for uh, like opportunities to, to build a lot of wealth. So you, you, you go where the money is often, you know, being a financial rep so that you can, you know, make a living. But that means you might not be spending as much time helping the people who might benefit the most from the help. You're going to these people who are already doing fairly well for themselves and, and helping them do even better – um, while ignoring some of the people that could benefit the most from the education but might not have the means at that time to uh, pay for the services or, um, you know, kind of compensate you for that time. Yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah. And sucks. <laughs> <laughs> it sucks a lot. It really does. So why is it important for members of the LGBT community or, or people of color to try to engage with mainstream financial strategies? Part of me feels like just burn it all down, but I understand <laughs> wanting to make it work for you. Oh, for sure. For sure. <laughs> um, I hear you in that. Uh, it, it can be really frustrating and, and, and wanting to burn it all down. I think that's a, that's a valid sentiment uh, at, at times along the way. I think there's a lot that, that can be learned, though, and I think there's a lot of strategies and there's a lot of ideas and concepts that can be put into place that can be used to better everyone's situation. You know, I firmly believe that that every single individual out there deserves access to this, uh, to the, the education at the very least. Everyone deserves to feel heard, and everyone deserves to feel like they have a resource. They have somebody that they can turn to, that they can trust. That's going to um, help them understand their uh, benefits through their employer. That's going to help them understand their you know retirement assets that's going to help them understand how to integrate all of it into a, a comprehensive plan to you know protect themselves uh, everyone deserves access to that that's a large part of why I do what I do if people want to burn down the system in the meantime uh, more power to them uh, <laughs> but there's a lot to be learned there's a lot to be uh, benefited from uh, for everyone uh, in the meantime After the break, we'll talk about the kind of love that feels big and boundless. So big and boundless that it creates partnerships of more than just two people. What? Stay tuned. I talk a lot on social media about being polyamorous, but it's not something that's come up much on Bad With Money. It's a fact about my life that has real financial implications. For a primer on what it means to be polyamorous, let's talk to Autostraddle's not-safe-for-work columnist, Carolyn Yates. People who are polyamorous 
have or are open to having multiple romantic and or sexual relationships with multiple people at the same time with everyone being super into that. And then open relationships are consensual and non-monogamous, but usually have like sexual component without feelings. Um, And then non-consensual non-monogamy is just cheating. Right. I mean, people can cheat in the other types of relationships too, but it doesn't look like your partner sleeping with someone else. It looks like your partner breaking the rules. The consensual part is the the big part that I think a lot of people struggle with understanding. <laughs> yeah, totally. Like, and probably the clearest way to put it is that poly is like sex and feelings and definitely consent. And that open relationships are sex and not feelings and definitely consent. And that cheating is sex and maybe feelings, but never consent. Right. Every single person does relationships differently. There's no better or right way, but people get real spooked by polyamory. Well, and even among poly people, I think there's a lot of like, oh, wait, you do that? Like, oh, you live on a commune with like your 12 partners and 18 children and you're all having the best time and childcare is taken care of. So that's great. But like, that's different than how I do. And it's just like, oh, yeah, but it's cool that people do stuff differently. A lot of the benefit of poly comes from sort of allowing relationships to build and grow however they're going to and not trying to put everything into little boxes. So whereas normally it's like, okay, if you meet a new friend, then you're obviously not going to sleep together because you're monogamous and that would be like breaking the rules of your relationship. But in Boring. Poly, it's like, oh, but you meet, exactly, right? <laughs> but in Polly, it's like, oh, but I really like you. Is this a date? Is this not a date? I mean, and even among like queer women, you meet on Tinder, it's like still 50-50 on whether or not it's actually a date sometimes. Ugh. Like, you can just, right, you can just go and see and like, oh, okay, is this, oh, actually, like, I really like this idea for this thing. Maybe we can be like, maybe we can career date, like whatever mm-hmm. the thing is. And so it just allows you to kind of explore in that way a little bit more. You would describe yourself as poly, right? Yes, correct. Has the financial component of different relationships been difficult to navigate? Not so far. I am married and live with my wife slash She's also my husband. We consider each other anchor partners. So we like feel like home when we're together and build our lives around each other. But don't like I can't say, oh, hey, don't date that person or kind of make that sort of demand. Um, And she can't do the same either. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's kind of how we structure that. And financially, we have most things. We have like a shared account from which all of our household expenses and recurring expenses come. So like the internet and the rent and like the New York Times subscription come from that. And then otherwise everything is separate. And so, so far, because we have in the course of our relationship only really, we've dated to varying extents, but not in ways that necessitate making financial decisions around other people yet. Mm -hmm. Almost a good way to think of it is like, okay, well, if it were, if you were going out with friends, how much money would you spend? Okay. So I wouldn't, talk to you about, oh, are you buying your friend's dinner? So I'm not going to talk to you about, oh, are you buying like your date's dinner, Mm -hmm. you know? But if you're going away for four days with somebody, then we would talk about it if it were with a friend. So we're probably going to talk about it when it's with like a romantic partner as well. Are there ways in which Polly makes money less complicated? Probably not. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) I think that um, one of the main benefits of Polly relationships, and this is a thing that people who are in other types of relationships can do, but again, it's less built in, um, is you're just forced to talk about stuff a lot more. And so because you don't even, I mean, you don't even know what your relationship can look like. If you go on a date with somebody, it's like, oh, hey, 
I have these many partners or my situation is like this. What is your situation like? As opposed to, uh, okay, we're just like on this date and it's implied in 2017 that if we're on a date together, we're probably both single and we probably both have. So now we're just going to like feel out each other as people instead of being like, yep, here's my life situation. What is your life situation? Mm -hmm. Cool. What are your expectations? Cool. Here are mine. And so because there's a little bit, and I'm not saying that people are good at this. Personally, I am very shitty at being like, oh, yes, there's a huge disparity in our financial situation. So, no, I cannot afford to do this thing that you want me to do. Right. Um, Because it sucks to be like, yeah, no, I actually, maybe if my wife helps me, I can do that thing with you. That'd be cool. That's what I like about it personally is like the being forced to talk about stuff way more than I think uh, the assumptions that a lot, like I know a lot of monogamous couples who have never talked to each other. And that yeah. is so perplexing to me. But also, yeah, it is interesting to to think about, like, if you're dating someone and you have to spell out that there's a difference in income or something like that, or there's a difference in how you're allowed to, like, maybe your incomes are are compatible, but you're not allowed to go off jet away to Mexico with your new partner and leave your wife or something, you know? Or maybe you normally would jet away to Mexico, but at least then you have somebody sitting there saying like, okay, but like, is this really a good idea, honey? And then you can be like, yeah, probably not. Or you can be like, yes, let me make this irresponsible decision, but at least I will be clear-headed about it. Yeah. Because um, there's no script. There's no, oh, yeah, this is what we do and this is what this looks like. And it's different for everyone, but also approximately following this model. You are making it up as you go, which means that you just have to talk about stuff so much more. So I wanted to talk to you about uh, people who are in long-term polyamorous relationships such as yours like the financial system is so fundamentally based on the idea of like heterosexual monogamous you know I imagine you've talked to people who live in households where it's like three people who are quote-unquote married or like you know a, a like a commune system or how does that work within like financial structures that don't really account for that I do think there really is something to you just have to talk about everything. And when there are not institutions that will support you, you have to figure out a way around that somehow. So if you are three people in a marriage together, probably you're going to do a little bit of math about, okay, so which of the two of us are going to be legally married? And then, so we file our tax return this way. And then, okay, if there are children involved, what kind of agreements, legally speaking, do we need there? And okay, for property, like, how does this work? And like, really just kind of consciously like not taking anything for granted, probably doing the opposite and taking like a lack of protection for granted and then creating your own structures to whatever extent you are able to kind of go forward with whatever protection you can create for yourself, basically. Yeah, I was on a a poly panel a couple weeks ago and uh, someone brought up that if there's a partner who, let's say, needs a visa or something and there's three people who are in a thing, but the two people consider themselves married, but then the third person is needs some sort of health insurance, then that would say who would get married. And almost the idea of marriage as being more like a thing that works for you and a convenience or helpful thing versus like a declaration of who are the two people who are most committed to each other. Yeah. Well, and if there are three people who are married together, then in their hearts, they are just as married if two of them have one piece of paper and the rest of them have like a different type of piece of paper. You right. Know? Or it's just like in their hearts. Well, it's almost like, like using yeah. using the system to work for you, like a system that is this very mainstream system to work for you and your queer life. I do have one person I know where she and her two partners live together um, and she was married to one of them. And then 
The other one, either he needed health insurance, something about a kid or like taxes or something. And it was basically like, all right, well, we're not getting real divorced, but we're going to get legally divorced. And then but I'll still live together and be partners. And I'm going to marry the other one of you so that we can like share insurance benefits this way. Relationship is exactly the same as it was. It's just like, oh, yes, now it looks like we got divorced, but really we're still together. And okay, now it looks like I'm marrying you, but really we've always been together. I know it's so fucked up, though, that we have to like play a game with the system rather than the system accounting for different types of people. Well, and it's also a little bit fucked up that romantic and sexual relationships are considered like the epitome of the relationship that you can have anyway. There are so many people who have... I used the term anchor partner a little bit ago um, to refer to my wife. But for a lot of people, the person who were there just together, it just like feels like, yes, like you see me and you know me. And this is like where my home is. That's not necessarily a sexual or romantic partner. It's like the three best friends with whom you feel that when you're all together. And you know that, oh, okay, so you've all been through like multiple divorces or relationships or like whatever your situations are, but you will always be together. Why not allow you guys to make legal and financial decisions around each other and have that codified? Why make it, oh yeah, this one person with whom if you have compatible reproductive systems, you would knock each other up one day. Like that <laughs> seems like such a silly way to do things. Yeah. To to merge all of that into being about taxes. Like, oh, you found love now taxes. Yeah. <laughs> and like, I, yeah, I don't know. I imagine it's it, they, it's done this way because it's like a system of control or something or it's like we want to we just oh, everything's very confusing and we just want to keep it like about property and taxes and health insurance. And like it's very it's it never really made that much sense to me. Well, yeah. And if you return to like the root of marriage as property exchange, then it's like, oh, yeah, that's where that comes from. Oh, did your wife get a lot of property in your marriage? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we have a dog, I guess. She's pretty cute. I don't know. Yeah, the dog is the property. <laughs> but she just... got three goats. I got six cows. So as you can tell, there's a lot of interesting ideas that go into making a life as a polyamorous person. But what's it like to live in a partnership that financial culture isn't really set up to support? For our last conversation this week, let's meet the writer and comedian Aaron Judge, who, like so many of us, is making it work whether the system likes it or not. So I am married to a man, and I've been married to him since 2008. And I am also Polly, and I have a girlfriend right now. And actually, she's been my girlfriend for four years, which is remarkable. And that's my situation. So, like, you live with one of them, right? I live with my husband, yeah. Mm -hmm. And my girlfriend lives in an apartment by herself nearby. A lot of financial systems are sort of built for a specific type of relationship without acknowledging that there might be other stuff going on. Is there like a financial dynamic or is there like a different sort of thing that you would have versus someone who maybe is in a like a monogamous heterosexual relationship? My marriage to my husband is in many ways, like on paper, extremely heteronormative, right? He's a man. I am a woman. We were both assigned. He was assigned male at birth. I was assigned female at birth. It's uh, we stuck with that. And now he earns more than me, which is also normal. And the way the system is designed is for the man to earn more. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, so I as a freelancer have uh, an advantage for him, it's like a tax break, basically, to be married with me and to file jointly. Mm -hmm. But from early on, 
um, this was before Obamacare and the ACA, like we I needed to get married to him to get insurance mm-hmm. so that I could leave my day job. I mean, it wasn't why we did it, but it was certainly like something that we were very aware of and took advantage of like immediately. Part of the financial struggles of my youth was that um, my mom actually had a really terrible injury um, in between when she was working and when she started law school. She broke her leg and had like a bunch of surgeries and stuff, and she was completely uninsured. And it framed the entire financial future of our family, like that one accident, for decades so I was really terrified of medical debt, and I wasn't about to be without insurance for any amount of time. And I actually grew up in a queer household. I grew up with mostly with my mom and her female partner. After my parents got divorced, my mom was single for a few years, and then she met a woman and fell in love with her, and then they were together. And, you know, this was in the 90s, and so it wasn't like they could get married and share insurance or anything like that. So... You know, that was sort of the situation right there where my mother could have been married to this person when she had this accident and then she would have had insurance. But they were both women. That wasn't even on the table. Mm -hmm. So um, it really, you know, shaped the financial future of my family, um, that accident. That's so crazy and fucked up that like your mom's injury had to have a huge effect on your family just because gay marriage wasn't allowed and she happened to be with a female partner. That sucks. Well, yeah, it's a couple things, right? Like, it's so gay marriage wasn't allowed. That would have been something that would have covered her. She, there was no insurance for people in between jobs. There was no ACA or anything like that. I mean, she had left her job voluntarily because she was about to start law school. Right. So, you know, like, that's another thing where it's like, okay, well, that's like a, a crazy thing that our country allows is just for people to have these gaps in their coverability. My mom's partner actually died of cancer and she was ill for a long time. And like, you know, she she couldn't leave her job because she needed to keep insurance, even yeah. though she was she was really sick. So there were a lot of things that I saw growing up and experienced um, that kind of shaped my desire to, like, do what I could to protect myself from that stuff. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I don't want to make it sound like I got married for financial reasons because I really do believe in making a commitment to somebody. All that stuff is tied together. And obviously, like, you've been with your husband forever. Like, you guys are in love. But it's crazy that that's all sort of uh, tied together. I don't know that it's a bad and it's not a bad thing to be like, that was a factor in why we got married, even though I know people think that it is. Well, I mean, yeah. And like, it's great that it exists for us. But really what it incentivizes is a really patriarchal nuclear family situation. And that's really not a great environment for women and children, necessarily. Like we have this idea that the nuclear family is the safest place for everyone. And it's actually one of the most dangerous institutions, you know, like uh, people ask me as a nightclub entertainer, aren't you scared to go out and like perform at nightclubs i'm like oh i'm i'm a married woman my husband is statistically the greatest threat to my safety and health i just read a thing about like how many women die every month from like domestic and intimate partner violence and we tell people like don't go hiking don't go to bars it's like uh yeah no the way in which the institution of marriage continues to be sort of supported in this sort of patriarchal manifestation of itself is like astonishing i mean in most states if my husband and i rent a car together We get to be co-drivers for free. Mm -hmm. Like, they can't charge us extra money. But, like, if I'm with my girlfriend renting a car in another state, it's like, you know, 10, 20 bucks per day for there to be an extra driver. It's just these little 
things that are just like, wow, it's completely nuts. Is there any sort of stuff with like how much, you know, for you, like how much I'm spending on stuff with my girlfriend versus like I'm going out of town with my husband or is there any kind of thing like that? Yeah, I mean, it's difficult to figure out like vacations sometimes because my husband and I don't have infinite funds. Right. So, you know, and he and I share finances, but my girlfriend and I don't. Um, And like, you know, we're all friends. We all hang out. We all spend a lot of time together, the three of us and with other friends as well. Like we've all gone on vacation together with another friend. And it's, you know, we're all very like... You know, it's it's the utopian future, but uh, (laughs) except for the part where we still have to worry about money. And so, yeah, I mean, it can be stressful um, with my relationship with my husband to be like, okay, I'm buying a plane ticket or I'm doing this hotel thing or whatever. And you're not part of it. There's one bucket for vacation spending. Right. And like it takes away from that. So, I mean, it's not this is not like an injustice. It's just like a thing that has to be considered also like i think people think about it in this way of like i gotta get two valentine's day presents you know what i mean like the most normative way of thinking but if if we're addressing that kind of stuff like how does that play into the financial dynamics i am not a big gift giver like it's kind of you know i like experiences and that's what i usually do Mm -hmm. for my loved ones like we'll go out to dinner or something like that And that's like, I mean, I think that if there was like a lot of tennis bracelets being exchanged, it would be like an extra burden. But I think that having like when you step outside of what is normative, like society's expectations, you also step outside of those expectations around like holidays and like giving gifts that are very expensive and things like that. Do you know about the five love languages? Yeah. Six. Well, however many love languages. But explain a little bit if people don't know. It's this theory, I don't know who the author is, but that there's, you know, five or six ways people express their love. I think it's five. And like some people, for them, gift giving is really important. And my girlfriend is clearly one of those people. Like she gives <laughs> she gives very thoughtful gifts. She gives like she'll send you a postcard in the mail, even though you live down the street. If the postcard reminded you, you know, like right. reminded her of you. She's she's like, I saw this and I had to get it for you. She's like one of those kinds of people. And I just like I, I've never really been that way. And so I'm always kind of receiving gifts from her. And I'm like, thank you. Hooray. And it's great. And she's very thoughtful. But I don't I don't I'm not inclined to do that same thing. Yeah. Um, you have a different love language. Yeah, I do. I do. I have a lot. Of, I'm multilingual in love. Oh, shocking. (laughs) Polyamorous, bisexual, and multilingual in love. (laughs) Um, I mean, that's a sustainable thing. I mean, you said, like, you're you're not going to break up with the girlfriend anytime soon. Like, this is going to be kind of like the three of you will kind of be the thing, right? At least you're hoping. I mean, I think that right now, like, you know... It's it's not compartmentalized for me, but it's very much it's clear in my mind what's happening. Like I am married. I have a great marriage. My husband and I have a great household. We like plan for the future together in ways that are involve like sharing finances and things like that. We sit and have conversations about money. We sit and have conversations about plans of where we want to live or like job transitions and things like that. Um, you know, my girlfriend moved to Los Angeles to live near me. 
Like, she's also a performer and a comedian, and she, this is the right place for her to be. But it's a serious relationship. Um, but she and I don't talk about that stuff as much because um, we're not, like, we're we're moving towards commitments. But right now our biggest commitment is that we are in a relationship and we call each other each other's girlfriend, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, for now, my relationship with my husband is still one that kind of conforms more with what people would think. Mm-hmm. But there are all these things that I'm starting to be like, wait a minute, like, are we all going to live separately or will like what will happen in the future? Who do I bring to weddings? You know, yeah. like, who do, I, who do I bring to events? I'm not like I'm, I'm not going to be like, hey, everyone in my life, I need a plus two. Uh, my friend had a birthday party where it was like uh, couples and they she had everyone stay at a hotel and I had a boyfriend at the time and I had a girlfriend and my my friend was like, I'm not like you get one hotel room, like deal with it. Like I like figure it out. Like, are you all, like, I don't know what to tell you, but it's also like a, it was like a couple's thing. So a lot of the stuff was like going to the pool is like cup like couples are going to the spa or whatever it was. And I was like, well. Like, I now I have to pick one to come to the thing. Like, it's all very ingrained, you know? Yeah. And when you start coming up against this, you see all the ways in which those things exist. And you also see all the ways in which they're kind of looser than, you know, like, uh, the people who know my girlfriend and know my husband love them both. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, now it's like I, I've seen, like, us get wedding invitations that are kind of like we each get one. Mm-hmm. You know, like, it oh, doesn't because say, people like, are individuals and not they don't become their relationships. This is breaking news here on Bad With Money. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's it's like to me, all these things are valuable, though. Like, yeah. I really do. I really do feel like having a family that you commit to and choose is valuable and like putting those commitments down in something like a marriage or whatever kind of commitment people mm-hmm. want to make. Like I think that if, you know, my husband and I entered a mortgage with my girlfriend, like that would be a pretty significant commitment, you mm-hmm. know? Right. But it's it's these are investments in in families and in community which we all crave and need and um, you know, I think helps people to thrive. Yeah, I mean, I just wish there was more wiggle room. You know, there's stuff where if you and he got divorced, could he, re- and it was like ugly, could he reasonably claim that you were cheating on him the whole time? You know what I mean? Like there's so, sure. it's so rigid. I mean, I think that there are some states where like people could say like the our insurance companies could drop us. Right. Like because, because our marriage is invalidated by adultery or whatever. Right. Or there you was know? like a thing where uh, uh, someone I was seeing, her wife, um, it was an immigrant, and they had to m- pretend to be monogamous, essentially, so that immigration wouldn't be like, this is a sham marriage. That's crazy. I mean, these things have huge stakes, you right. know? And meanwhile, like, I-, I look at, like, these people who are in charge of our country right now, and I don't see a lot of marriages to envy, you know? Like, <laughs> I don't admire Mike Pence's marriage. I don't think most people do. Yeah. You know, I don't. I don't think that Donald Trump is anybody anybody could say is monogamous. And I would guess, I know people aren't as out about it as people like you and I are because we're just like entertain entertainment weirdos, but like I would guess there are more people who have some sort of leeway or some sort of non-monogamy than talk about it and then, you know, like it's more prevalent and more all around us than I think is 
than the normies who get all the benefits, you know? The kinds of financial advantages that are um, created by a marriage and like, okay, so we just got audited by our insurance company. They needed us to prove to them that we were married to each other. Okay. And like that, just that these things happen is so crazy. Like that you could get somebody being like, okay, this child that lives with you half time and is your biological child, um, are you really like able to claim them as a dependent or does somebody else do that? Mm -hmm. And then if you get audited, they can kick that kid off the insurance plan. You know, so it's like all all these like very legalistic definitions around relationships and all these corporations are very incentivized to like poke holes in them. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Like be like, okay, is, is this really a relationship? Because if it's not, I don't have to pay that person benefits my whole life. Like I had this stepmom who I couldn't tell anybody who she was. Yeah. You know, I mean, there was a judge in Collin County, which is where I went to high school and middle school in Texas, and he made a woman have her girlfriend move out under threat of loss of custody of her children in 2013. Ugh. So I was doing, I was living there in the 90s, and I was terrified, and I I didn't tell anyone, and I was afraid to tell anyone, and I was afraid to explain who this person was. Right. Meanwhile, you know, while my mother was in law school, my mom's partner, like, kept a roof over my head and kept me fed mm-hmm. you know like she 100 percent supported us both with bisexuality i i just wanted to talk about like how you might feel that that impacts like your financial life or your you know, the places you get booked to do comedy or job stuff or um even like you know i've had experiences going to medical professionals as a bisexual woman myself and ex- explaining that to, like, people who apparently have never heard of such a thing? Well, I'll talk about two things. Yeah, First yeah. of all, with, with being poly, um, medical professionals are very interesting because it's pretty much across the board everywhere I've lived and everyone I've talked to. They are, they are like, and you're married, so you don't need an STD test. Oh, yeah, you posted about that. Yeah, I've had that, too. And it's like, first of all, well, first of all, there's 10 million things wrong with that. Number one, like I have to then be like, I'm not monogamous. And then they ask me about, you know, they ask me the required questions. But second of all, like they're like there are dudes cheating on their wives. Mm-hmm. You know? And those women who are then going to medical professionals who are like, oh, I don't need to test you for gonorrhea because you're married to a man like that could hurt their fertility. That could damage their body. Right. You know, it it just seems like you should be like, well, the protocol is to assume, you know, everyone's out there doing whatever. And then I think that there once you say you're poly and then you say, oh, I have in my experience, I go, oh, and I have a boyfriend and a girlfriend. So I have male and female partners. They're like, what? Yeah, they're like, OK, well, and then they ask. I mean, I've had people ask, I think, pretty pretty smart follow-up questions once they hear that. Mm -hmm. But I have to, like, speak up for myself. You know, Mm -hmm. like, I have to be like, okay, sure, like, yes, I'm married, but that doesn't mean that you should assume that I'm monogamous. Right. So I just, I need you not to read my practices into my marital status. Yeah. And so also, can you talk about, like, job, job stuff or? Yeah, totally. I think that the biggest thing is that I'm a creative professional and I you know I wrote a book with a bisexual protagonist yeah say what it's called oh it's called vow of celibacy and it's not about celibacy it's about the opposite yeah you gotta plug your shit okay yeah yeah (laughs) 
my agent really liked it and she took it out to all these publishers and none of them knew what genre it was. Yeah. So she has female relationships and male relationships and, you know, she's mostly about stuff that isn't about her bisexuality. It's not a coming out book. It's not about her coming out as bisexual. Right. Right. So it's like she's just living her bisexual life. And I think that a lot of people were just like, what who do I sell this to? Is it for gay women or straight women? You know, those are the only two categories of human. So, I mean, it's it's really interesting because, you know, I sort of have seen the reaction of the readers. And like what I really dig about it is that a lot of the straight women who read the book are like, yeah, I really, really identified with this character. And I've noticed they don't really feel the need to have a caveat of like, except I'm straight. Mm hmm. Which is, I think, pretty cool. But I think in general, the publishing industry, just like every other element of the entertainment industry, you know, especially like traditional networks, but also a lot of television networks and production companies, you know, they really think in this very, very sort of basic bucket idea of who humans are and what they will watch and what they will consume. Yeah. And that, you know, demographically, they're like, unless I see a huge bisexual market out there emerge, I just I'm not going to make bisexual (laughs) content. (laughs) I had uh, we shot a a pilot, Allison and I, and and my character was me. So she was bi. And there were and there was an exec who asked, why would a lesbian date a man? And I was like, (gasps) I don't know. That, that's amazing. And I don't also, know what to tell you. I have some news. <laughs> I know. I mean, that's amazing. And like, and people are surprised, but that's what you're up against. Like, if you right. have a project that you think makes sense to you and is completely like it's a bisexual character, like bisexuality is an idea that people are used to. That's probably why it's not getting through if it's not getting through. Because yeah. people are just like, I don't know what that is. So moving on. In terms of of doing comedy, even like, are there some states or venues or places where you're like, I have to do different material? You know, I've had really great experiences doing my material in like what I guess people would call red states. Mm -hmm. Like I've had people tell me that I had one person tell me who is also a comedian. She told me this like a month ago. She's like, you're the first person I ever heard talk about bisexuality. And that's when I started to explore my own ideas about that and now mm-hmm. I'm out and by and all that stuff and I was like wow and um one time I was in Andersonville South Carolina and I just did my normal material and uh the bartender was like 20 she was like a college student and she was like you're like the first out person I've heard talk about this stuff ever like and she showed me her rainbow tattoo and I was like (laughs) I love you it was great so I mean you know there's like maybe there are people who don't want to book me or don't think I'm appropriate for this or that but those of us who are like queer entertainment people like there are also people who specialize in that you know so there's a it kind of is counterbalanced like I got booked on a gay cruise you know oh my god the dream yeah, they were like, they were like, you're bisexual. We, we've had the L and the G and the T, but never the B. And I was like, I'll be your B. Yeah, I'll be so. your B on the C. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be your B on the C. I love it. I like it because it could be C for cruise or C like S-E-A. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, a great, great pun. Thank you so much. I mean, I, I struggle with talking about polyamory on stage just because when I talk about it, when I introduce the idea, a lot of times what I see in the audience is like um, I'll see a male and female couple in the audience and the dude will like cheer and be like, yeah. And the woman will like hang her head in shame and pain. 
And I don't want to see that, you know, like, I don't want that to be the dynamic around what I'm raising is just like, yeah, like, I want to do it with everybody. And like, this, (laughs) this poor girl is like, I just want, I just want somebody who's going to hold my hand, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think it's, I think it can get conflated with like really irresponsible dating. Yes, exactly. That guy doesn't want to have the 12 conversations you have to have before you go on a date with someone else. He's not thinking about that. No. I think about that all the time. Like, there's, like, some, like, whenever, like, male friends of mine are, like, I could be polyamorous. I'm, like, oh, really? You could, like, come home and know that your girlfriend fucked someone else. And then when they think about it, they're, like, well, I'm crying. And I'm, like, right. You're a little, like, you just are. It's, like, a lot of, like, toxic male posturing. Yeah. And I think that the idea, like, I don't know. I think when people think about gay relationships and gay marriage, you know, they don't think about it as being a th- like some of them are like, oh, well, it's a threat to traditional marriage. And it's like, well, it's it's a threat to being forced to do something you don't want to do. Right. Yeah. But in a way, like polyamory is it's not a threat, but it calls into question a lot of the assumptions about what a commitment is. Yeah. And God forbid we have to think about anything. As we close out Bad With Money Season 2, I've really enjoyed the comments that you guys have sent me about my ever-increasing radicalization through this show. I think I started out in the beginning kind of naive and asking questions about money and just sort of wanting to like look into it, a a topic that I had never looked into, my own financial life. And (laughs) that snowballed into me realizing that there are entire systems set up that are not beneficial to the majority of people. So there is a lot of talk in this episode about making the system work for you, which I appreciate from Elena and from Aaron and from Chris and Natalie and Carolyn, because I think it's really valuable advice. And I also think it's helpful to realize that you are not alone. And I like the idea of getting in there and subverting it from the inside. So thank you. Thank you for listening to season two. Thank you for going on this journey with me. Thank you for being open to hearing different voices and voices that are often maligned in mainstream media and who you don't often hear talk about money and who you don't often hear interviewed on podcasts. I appreciate it immensely. My guests appreciate it immensely. And I hope to see you back for season three with even more of this stuff. In the meantime, please stay subscribed to the podcast because we recorded a couple bonus episodes that are going to pop up hopefully over the summer. Um, One is a live episode from Autostraddle Camp, which is a camp for queer and trans people that I attend every year. Uh, And it's an interview about starting a small business. And then hopefully there will be another episode released uh, with a special guest that never ended up getting released. And aside from those episodes, there is some other big news. So even further out in the future, we don't have a release date, so don't get too excited. But it is happening. Uh, I am writing a Bad With Money book. So there will be a book covering more details about my life and more details about the systematic stuff that we've talked about in this show that we couldn't cram into an hour. So now it just goes in a book. Um, And I'm really excited to be working with Atria on it. That'll be coming out 
I think 2018 or 2019, I'm not sure. Books are crazy, man. Books take forever. Um, in the meantime, you can pre-order my novel, I Hate Everyone But You, which comes out uh, in September of 2017. But after that, there's going to be a Bad With Money book. So two books, two books to keep an eye on. And um, yeah, I'm really excited to be able to say more than I can on the show. Yay! Guys, we're doing it. We're building an empire. We're going to have, we're going to take over and all the... <laughs> All the bad financial gurus are gonna be pushed out by me, a person who knows nothing. I'm just kidding, that will never happen. Thank you for listening to Bad With Money. If you like the show, please rate and review us on iTunes and be sure to tell all your friends who are bad with money that this is the show for them. Also tell your boring heteronormative friends who make faces when you tell them about your sex life but are secretly curious. I'm just kidding. You're not boring. Love to all the heteronormative monogamous people, I guess. We're part of the Panoply Network. Our producers are Sam Dingman and Afim Shapiro. Andy Bowers is Panoply's chief content officer. Original music for our show was composed by Zach Sherwood, Mike Kaplan, and Jack Dolgen. Our theme song is performed by Sam Barbera, and our show art is by Cameron Glavin and Dan Blondell. I'm Gabby Dunn. Thanks for another great season. There will be more Bad With Money soon. 